Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, James. So let's do a little bit of introductory work before we actually get into the book of James because we'll just spend hopefully tonight on James. We did Hebrews for four weeks, but Hebrews is kind of a deep book. If there's an exact opposite book of Hebrews, it's James. And it's the book that comes right after Hebrews, Hebrews, James. And so who was James? I'm glad you asked. It's on the screen there. Let me answer the question for you. No, James was actually Jesus' brother. Um, And he was also the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. Uh, Matthew 13, 55 tells us that he was the Lord's brother. And in Acts 15, he was the leader of the Jerusalem council. And so um, Paul mentions him in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, 15, 7 as one of the chief witnesses of the resurrection. So we have an actual book of the Bible written by Jesus. And I guess you'd say half-brother because obviously he was the offspring of Mary and Joseph. Jesus was the offspring of the Holy Spirit and, and Mary. So um, he's Jesus' brother, James. Also, another interesting thing about James is that his letter is probably one of the earliest books of the New Testament that we have, date-wise, probably around A.D. 50. So we're talking basically 2018, 17, 20 years after the death of Christ. So one of the earliest New Testament books. So who's he writing to? Who's he writing to? That's a big question. Well, let's look at James 1.1, and we'll find out his audience. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. That sounds kind of Old Testament, doesn't it? To the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Who are the twelve tribes in the dispersion? Is this a letter strictly for Jewish people, or is this a metaphor for God's people that are spread all over the world? Now, what's the dispersion? What's the diaspora, the dispersion, the spreading out? A couple of things. Back in the Old Testament, if you guys remember, what happened when King Nebuchadnezzar came in and ransacked Jerusalem? They were sent off into Babylonian captivity. That was called the dispersion of the Jews. They were, they were no longer in Jerusalem. They were dispersed out into the world. In Acts, if you remember, what happened when Saul, before he became Paul, began persecuting the church? There was a great persecution and the church was scattered or dispersed. So I look at it as as a metaphor for the Jews and Gentiles, but he's kind of giving this metaphor of the 12 tribes, meaning you're God's people, but it's got a very, very Jewish flavor to this book. As a matter of fact, it's the, um, it's the closest thing we have to the book of Proverbs. It's the New Testament, actually the New Testament version of Proverbs. Now, what are the Proverbs? Proverbs are little pithy sayings that deal with wisdom, right? James is the most non-theological book in the New Testament. 
You don't have a lot of talk about the Holy Spirit, not a lot of talk about salvation, not a lot of talk about the person and work of Christ. It's practical wisdom for living. So when we think about James, it's this whole idea of, it's, very, it's probably the most practical book in the Bible, in the New Testament, and it's, it's very proverbial in the sense that it sounds a lot like the Proverbs. Now, there's a key word that shows up in the book of um, James. It shows up over and over again. It's the Greek word teleos. Teleos basically means complete or mature. Um, so when you see that word mature or complete, um, some translations may say perfect. I think sometimes we get confused in our English translations of perfect because we, when we think of perfect, what do we think of? No mistakes. We're, that's not what the word... The teleos means... The word really means to, to come to its completed goal. To come to its completed end. To be mature. To be complete. So the whole issue of the book of James is, is how does a believer practically live out his or her faith in the real world? And so there's going to be a lot of practical wisdom type of snippets in the book of James that help us to think practically of how to live out our Christianity. Now, Hebrews was the exact opposite. What was Hebrews? This grand book on the person and work of Christ that was very deep and very rich and very Christological. James is very, very short, sweet, practical wisdom. Um, he, He just kind of gives you a little punch there. So here we go. Let's just begin. And this is how he begins it. Chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect. There's that word there. My translation says perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So right from the bat, we see that that Greek word teleos, or, or, or perfect. And so... Um, the reality of trials, the reality of trials. Why would you think he'd start out, count it all joy when you meet trials? Is that counterintuitive? Do we want to be joyful in the midst of trials? No. What's the last thing we want to think of when we have trials? This stinks. I don't want to go through this trial. That's the, you know, when I, when I fell and broke my ankle on that Sunday morning of all times, I mean, the car was running. Zach was in the car, buckled in. Don and Aiden were already here at church. I walk around. I'm about to get in the driver's seat and drive, and boom, I slip. And the lady across the street heard the pop outside the house or inside her house because she came over this week and said, I knew you must have broken it because I heard the pop. And I'm thinking to myself, I can't do anything because if I get Zach out of the car, what am I going to do with Zach? And I could call Dawn and have her come home, but she's already at church. And so I'm like, the best thing for me to do is to get in the car and drive to church. So I drove to church and came walking in, and the rest is history. But the last thing I was thinking of during that day was, man, this is joyful. (laughs) This is fun. This is really what I wanted to have happen. But what what does James say there? When you meet various trials, various kinds of trials, all of us have different types of trials, don't we? I mean, it's not just like... One trial. All of us have different trials. And he says this, this testing of your faith, what does it produce? What does this testing produce? Steadfastness. Faithfulness. And then ultimately it's going to lead you to become what? So what's the ultimate goal of you going through trials? It's for your maturity so that you can mature in Christ. You can be complete in Christ. And so the question we often ask is, what's the question we ask a lot? 
why do bad things happen to good people? Instead, the question we should ask is, why do good things even happen to bad people? (laughs) What's the assumption of why do bad things happen to good people? What's the assumption? People are good, and we deserve good things to happen to us, and something bad happens. It's, oh, no. What does the Bible really say? Well, we're really sinners, and for God to allow good things to happen is an act of grace. And so I kind of play around with that little statement there. But the thing about it is, is that God, here's the issue. Let me, let me ask you this question. Does God ordain, does he allow, or does he permit trials and sufferings to come into your life? Yes. <laughs> and sometimes we can worry about trying to figure out, did God ordain this, or did God allow it? Or is God permitting it? Or did God orchestrate it? And you can worry about that all day long, but at the end of the day, what's the, what's the issue? If it happens, God's, if he ordained it, he's allowing it, if he's allowing it. So the point is, not is God behind it. The point is, why is God allowing it? And James says there, it's for your growth, for your maturity, for your good. Is God doing it to punish you as a Christian? No, he's not doing it to punish you. Um, so sometimes just bad things happen. You know, did God cause my ankle to break? I don't think God caused it to happen to break, but, I mean, there was ice there, and I was stupid, and I slipped on it. And, I, you know, sometimes you just face the consequences of your own actions. Sometimes God orchestrates. We really don't know. It's a mystery. But God brings these or, or allows these trials in our lives so that we can become complete. Now, there's another verse that um, is a piggyback verse, and it's, it's in Romans chapter 5, 3 through 5. When Paul says, and he almost uses the same words that that James uses, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Okay, so he uses the word rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So Paul says the same thing. What's the purpose of trials? To build character. And then we're supposed to be joyful and rejoice in those because God's going to do a work first Thessalonians 5 23 now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ what that promise from that scripture is that God's going to make sure we get what we will never be mature complete in this world so don't believe anybody that says I've arrived I've arrived I never sin. I've got it all figured out. Run from that person, okay? <laughs> because the moment they say that, you're just waiting for, for something. But God, yeah, wait for lightning. God does promise that he will complete us. And when is that going to happen? The day we step foot into heaven will be complete. But God promises to do that. Okay, so that's how the book of James starts. Now let's go down into verse 22 of chapter 1. Um, obedience to the word. We're not going to look at everything in James just because to get through the whole book tonight, we're going to have to um, pick and choose which parts we're going to go through. But um, 21 through 27, let's read that together. Chapter 1, verses 21 through 27. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what, was, what, what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. 
If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the word. So what does verse 22 say? Be what? Doers. And this word doer really carries the idea of your whole person. In every aspect of your life, you are to be a doer, to be obedient, your mind, your soul, your body. What did Jesus tell us? Love the Lord your God with your whole mind, strength, soul. So everything you are is to be obedient, a doer. Now, it's interesting. The word hearer here is an interesting Greek word. When he says, don't just be a hearer of the word, it's where we get our word audit. What happens if you audit a college class? You just, are you taking it for a grade? You just, you're just sitting in there, right? Do you listen as closely for the test? Do you you kind of just passively sit back and audit the class, right? The Greek word there is where we get our word audit, and it has the idea that you're just kind of passively sitting back, accepting the word of God, letting it go in one ear and out the other, but you're not really doing it. Now, this is where the, the Hebrew, the Jewish nature of Paul of, of James's writing comes in. Do you guys remember Deuteronomy um, chapter 6, the Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Okay, Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. Now, when we, in English, when we hear the word hear, what do we think? To listen to, right? Like physically to have it go into your, what's it called, the olfactory nerve? Is that your nose? What's the, what's the one? The auditor, what's it called, the auditory nerve? Auditory nerve. Yeah, you don't smell. <laughs> Blessed are those who smell the word. No, um, Shema. So in Hebrew, the language of Hebrew, Shema doesn't just mean, we translate it hear or listen, but really it conveys the idea that if you're going to hear it, it assumes that it means you're going to obey it. So anytime that God says hear, especially in the Old Testament, hear, hear, listen, it's an assumption that you're not just going to like, okay, I'm taking it in through my ears. It's I'm taking it in intently with the intention of actually obeying what I hear. And that's what, that's what James is saying here. Don't just be, don't just audit the word. Don't just let it passively come in you. Let it be where you are actually a doer of the word. And then he talks about this imagery of a, of a mirror. How many of you guys remember what you look like? Hopefully. I think you kind of know. James is like, okay, it's kind of like this. You go look at yourself in the mirror and you walk away and you forget what you look like. It's a person that looks intently in the mirror. You're getting every detail right. And so when he says, when you look intently into the law, perfect law of freedom, this word look means to bend over and carefully examine something from the clearest possible view. You want to intently look into the scriptures. So when you are a doer of the word and not just a hearer, it means that when you hear that word, you are intently looking at it. You're, you're studying it. You're, you're, you're closely examining it. What does Psalm 19, 7 through 9 tell us about the word of God? Psalms 19, 7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, all enduring forever. The rules 
of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So why would we want to study the Word? It brings life to our soul and it gives us, gives us everything we need. Now, what James is going to do here is he's going to give us three specific ways that we can be active doers of the Word. So what does he say here? Verse 26. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue. James is going to talk a lot about the tongue. And he starts off right here. One of the ways we're a doer of the word is we control our tongue. And I'll be the first to admit today, guys, I haven't done a very good job of this today. <laughs> How many of you just had those days where you've gotten in arguments with your family or you said things, you're like, oh, man, why did I say that? All of us have been there, right, where we just let our tongue lash. Um, it's amazing. We'll, we'll look in just a few moments here what James says about the tongue. But the first way you can be a doer of the word is to control your tongue. Control what you say. And not just what you say, but how you say it. And then the second thing is concern for the helpless. What does he say here? What's pure religion? To take care of widows and orphans. To take care of the helpless. To be there. Practical Christianity is we see those that are less fortunate than us and we help them. That's the way to be a doer of the word. And then what's the other one? To be unstained from the world. You want to avoid worldliness. So, so very practical. Watch your tongue. Help out people that are less fortunate than you and, and don't be caught up in the world. That's how you can be a doer of the word and not just a hearer. And so that's what James says there about, about the input that we have in our lives, avoiding worldliness. Now let's go. You can ask a question. And I'm going to come stand. Yes. The other day on the corner, there's someone standing there that mm-hmm. says homeless. Yep. What do you do? What do you do? There's levels of discernment, I think, that you have to just discern in, in that moment. Um, and I will, I'll give you kind of an example. And, and I think like Larry and Ray and others that are, are deacons, can, and, and both Larrys here, can, can help. We have a benevolence ministry here at Emmanuel. And people will come and ask for help a lot won't they? People will come off the street or they'll... And so a lot of times we'll send them down to cooperating ministries first because they have the clearing house there that they can do the background checks and they can say, oh, this person's come 50 times and they've got the resources to be able to do that. And sometimes, you know, we'll we'll decide, you know, we're not going to go any further with that person because they've abused the system. But sometimes our deacons will sit down with people and talk with them and find out it's a legitimate need and they'll help them to a certain extent that we have some policies or whatever. So I think in a case like you, if you're doing that, um, I personally would rather err on the side of being generous than to make the judgment. And the reason why is our first fear is, well, if I give that guy money, he's going to go spend it on drugs or he's going to go spend it on booze and I've just thrown away my money. Part of it is you can't help what they're going to do once you give that money away. And so like a one-time helping that guy... It's probably like a decision on the fly that you just seriously pray about. Now, if you enable that person, meaning like you keep on doing it and you don't see any change, there's a difference between helping and enabling. And I think that's the hard. Wouldn't you guys agree as deacon? I mean, everybody, but that's the hardest part we have is what's the fine line between enabling a person to continue down a path or genuinely helping somebody and seeing that change? And, and I, I'm more of a softy, so I tend to, tend to, to rely on the side of, being generous and let God work out. I can't control what they're going to do once it leaves my hands. But if God's prompting me to give, and sometimes God 
may not want you to give. I think it's just being sensitive. I don't know if that answers your question or if that's... Because that's a hard thing. Yeah. You know, I remember one time I was at um, I was at youth camp and we were at, Glor- at Glorieta down in New Mexico and we went into Santa Fe and there was a guy that was panhandling out there on the street and I said he wanted me to give him money and I said, well, you know what? Are you hungry? And he said, yeah, I'm hungry. I said, well, come in here. We're eating at McDonald's. So I invited him into McDonald's, paid for his lunch, had him sit down and eat with us, and I shared the gospel with him and left. That was a, more of a decision of okay, I've got a captive audience and I can pay this guy's lunch versus just giving him $10 and not knowing what he's doing with it. I felt better about that. Not everybody has an opportunity. I know some guys, especially in Denver, where you see more of this, they always have an extra pack of lunch in their car. And if a guy's like that, they'll just give him a brown bag lunch and give him something as opposed to money. Um, when, we were, when I was a youth pastor in Colorado Springs, we made these homeless kits. We got the big old plastic bags, like uh, Ziploc bags, and we'd put like socks, disposable razors, um, shampoo, um, like little pudding, um, everything that you would, like paper towels. And we'd build these kits and we'd go down in like downtown Colorado Springs and we'd put like a New Testament Bible in there and we'd hand those out to people. And so that's a way that you can meet a need without, I mean, at least you're giving him food and giving him something without. So I think there's creative ways to help people, um, you know, I don't know. It's one of those tough, tough things. So, yes, Noel. It's funny because sometimes things come to you from strange places. I was conflicted about that too. Do you or don't you? And then I thought, well, I'm blessed. The bottom line is, is I have more than I need. I'm blessed, and it's not for me to judge. God tells us that we're not to judge. And my mom said, you know what? You don't know their situation, and you don't know their story. Maybe the place they come from. The alcohol is the only thing that relieves their pain. And she said, the bottom line is is that if, they, if they're in need and your brother is in need, the Bible tells you to give. She said, it's, and, and that changed the way I saw things. That changed things for me. I didn't have a problem giving money because we all hurt. How we deal with it, yeah. what our circumstances yeah. are. And I think I think your perspe- I think everybody's got a different perspective because I know li- working in the church world, we see patterns of people that abuse the system. And working with other pastors, we'll call each other. Hey, th- beware of this person. They've come to our church, and they're okay. I know they're coming. So there's people that go to churches to work the system. Um, so you kind of have to watch out for that. But I, I would always personally, I would always err on the side of being generous, with the sense that. Um, that verse that we looked at last week in Hebrews, some people have entertained angels unaware. Um, so that's a good, great question because I think it's, that's a hard, it's, 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 it's discernment. Okay. Well, let's get into something that's just as hard. <laughs> James two fourteen through 26. This is what caused Martin Luther to almost feel like James shouldn't be in the Bible. Um, and you've probably heard that this section is going to confuse you based upon everything that you probably know about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Okay, so remember your solid theology of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And let's read that with that lens of what the rest of the Bible says about how we're saved. Okay, so let's look in verse 14 of chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? That's what made Martin Luther a little scared. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, 
What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Ah, That's another one that got people scared. When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Okay. Faith and works. Let's just answer some preliminary questions. How are we saved? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, can we establish from the very beginning we are not saved by works? Okay. Can everybody agree with that, right? Okay. Romans 3, 28. For we hold that one is justified by... that we, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then Romans 4, 4 through 5, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So we've got to ask a question. What in the world is James saying here? We've got to go back in James and set a foundation before we get to this passage. So go back to chapter 1 and look at verses 17 and 18. Because I think James is making an assumption here to his audience that we need to understand. Because sometimes we jump into this and think he's talking about salvation when we get to chapter 2. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about how we live out our faith. Because James is going to teach salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Right here in chapter 2, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. If you have an NIV, I think it says, He caused us to be born again. He brought us forth by His own will. So, What has God done to the Christian? God has caused him or her to be what? Born again. To have faith. To be a Christian. It's a a gift of God that he's given to us in salvation. So James is there saying that, yes, we've been born again. The question isn't, okay, are we saved by faith? Are we saved by works? The question is, once you're a born again Christian, why, why are you saved? What are you saved for? And Ephesians 2.10 answers that right after Ephesians 2.8 and 9. What does Ephesians 2 say? For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So why were we saved? Little key word. Were we saved by good works or for good works? We were saved for good works. We were saved by grace for good works. Titus 2.14 tells us that too. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good 
works. So here's the question. Are James and Paul truly in conflict? No. Audience, audience, audience. Who was Paul writing when he was talking about this? He was talking about Judaizers who were coming in trying to teach Christians that they could be saved by obeying the law. That's what Paul was talking about. James, on the other hand, is assuming that his audience is already saved. And what he's, de- what he's decrying is this whole idea of easy believism. And what I mean by easy believism is I said a prayer, I walked an aisle, I raised my hand, I may have gotten confirmed or even dunked, but I'm going to live however I want and show no evidence of my salvation. That's what James is addressing here. He's saying if you really have saving faith, you're not saved by works, but if you're truly saved by grace, it's going to prove itself in your works, in the way that you live. There's going to be fruit. So they're not in conflict there. Both of them are talking the same thing. He's talking about dead faith. What's dead faith? 1 John 3, 17, If anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That's what James says here. He gives a perfect example. Okay, you say you're a Christian and you see a person there that's poorly clothed and lacking in food and you go up to them and say, oh, you know, have a good day and you walk on. Does that really mean that you are saved? Now, that doesn't mean that like every time you see somebody in need. The, the, the general principle is, is that if you are truly a Christian, it's going to prove itself out in your, in your actions and especially in the way that you love one another and you take care of one another. I think that's what James is saying there. Dead faith. And then he does this diatribe. A diatribe is a Jewish, um, Hebraic, <coughs> fake argument between two hypothetical people in, in order to make his point. So it sounds like he's kind of, like, if you notice verse 18, someone will say, you have faith, and he's got like this fake conversation between these two people. It's kind of a Hebraic way of, of getting this point across. And so what he's doing is he's basically saying, show me your faith. If you truly have saving faith, it's got to be backed up by, by evidence, by fruit, by works. And then he says, um, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the de- demons believe that and shudder. You know, um, the Shema, what we said earlier, Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Do you realize that there is a demonic type of faith? What does it say here? Do demons believe in God? Do they shudder? Are they saved? Are they going to heaven? Not a chance. Not a chance. Okay. Does the de- and I think we've talked about this in here before. Does the devil have good theology? He probably has better theology than most of us here. Does he love Jesus? Does he obey Jesus? No. So just having the head knowledge of God... Demons have that. And James is saying, there's something that goes deeper. It's salvation by grace through faith, and it proves itself out in a lifestyle that has, has backed up action, is what he's saying. And then he gives the example of Abraham. And, and it really kind of gets kind of interesting here because he says Abraham was justified by works. Now, that sounds almost exactly opposite of Paul. Paul just said, we're not justified by works. How can Abraham be justified by works? Now, let me kind of explain that tonight. James is concerned with showing how we as believers are justified before men 
in demonstrating our faith, not in our acceptance before God in salvation. Do you understand what I'm saying? When it says Abraham was justified, it doesn't mean that what he did saved him. What Paul is saying is that what he did proved out his faith so that we can look at that and say that he was genuinely a believer. Does that make sense? So when he offered up Isaac on the mountain, this idea of justification has two meanings in Scripture. One, it means acquittal or legal declaration that we're not guilty. That's the way Paul uses it, that we're justified before God, we're not guilty in God's courtroom, our sins have been forgiven. But the other way it's used is it's a vindication as proof of righteousness. In other words, it's, it's basically saying that God's going to bring proof to a person's life to show that they truly were saved in the first place. Remember what Hebrews 11 kept saying? By faith, by faith, by faith, these people did these things. They were saved already, but what were they doing? They were proving out their faith by active obedience. So here's what this whole thing of, of Abraham is. The act of sacrificing Isaac on the altar was not what made Abraham acceptable and righteous before God in salvation. That was already granted to him in a covenant promised chapters earlier, and it was strictly by faith. This act of obedience was Abraham's demonstration of brave faith in response to his already being saved and justified. Does that make sense? Let me give you guys the example of, of John Wesley for just a moment. I don't know if you know the story of John Wesley, because I think John Wesley is a good example of a person that had dead faith until he was saved. Some of you are like, oh, John Wesley. John Wesley was an Anglican priest in England in the 1700s. He was ordained to the priesthood. He started a club where he went to prisons and did prison ministry. He started helping the poor. And then he decided to go on a mission trip to America to talk to the Indians in Georgia. So he got on a boat with his brother, came over to America, was a missionary over here, doing mission work. And then he gets on a boat and goes back and meets these group of people called the Moravians. The Moravians were some German missionaries that were really passionate about God. And, and, and they were, he was like, there's something different about these people. I don't understand it. And in John Wesley's journal, he writes this, how sad it was that I went to America to convert the heathen when I myself was not converted myself. He knew that he was a pastor. He was feeding the poor. He was doing prison ministry. He was doing mission trips. And the whole time he knew he was lost. He wasn't saved. So he was doing a lot of religious things, but never had that relationship with Christ. It wasn't until he got back to England and um, the Moravians started having these Bible studies. And they kept coaxing him to go, why don't you come to one of our Bible studies? Why don't you come to one of our Bible studies? He's like, okay, I guess I'll go. So he begrudgingly goes to Aldersgate one night. And they're, they're studying Martin Luther's book of Romans. And a guy just reads the preface to the book of Romans, and John Wesley says, During that time, my heart was strangely warmed till I realized for the very first time, I was a sinner, I needed salvation, I trusted in Christ, I became a Christian. Then he was saved, and then, then he went on his preaching ministry, and then the whole Methodist church was birthed out of, out of John Wesley. But here's an example of a guy that was doing a lot of religious things, but he wasn't saved. My former pastor was lost as a pastor. He was preaching messages. And on the Sunday morning when they gave the invitation, he went forward to himself. I mean, he went forward at the invitation and turned the congregation and said, I've lived a lie. I'm not saved. And one of the deacons said, man, 
I wonder what kind of preacher you're going to be now. You were a good preacher before you were saved. I bet your sermons are going to be even better now that you are saved. That's scary. So dead faith, if you're truly saved, it's going to show itself in, in action. All right, let's get to a scary verse that pertains to me. Chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Thank you, James. That's what I wanted to hear. (laughs) The awesome responsibility of teachers. You know, a teacher is in a position of authority, and it's it's very humbling to realize that. I don't know how that's going to work itself out. It just says, there's a verse there that says we're going to be judged stricter. I don't know what all that means. It just means I better make sure that when I stand up and preach and teach, I know what I'm talking about. Um, It doesn't mean that you have to have all of your ducks in a row because I don't think we'll ever have all of our ducks in a row. It just means that, you know, if you're going to stand up and teach, you better make sure that you know what it is that God's called you to do. Now, let's talk about the power of the tongue because James deals with the tongue a lot. gives a whole section here in chapter 3 about the tongue. So let's read about the tongue. Start in verse 3. Well, let's start in verse 2. For if we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Now, that word perfect, again, doesn't mean he's not without flaw. Perfect is that word complete. He's mature. He's a mature man. Verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile, of sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursings, my brothers, these things not ought to be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. He gives three metaphors here to give us the power of the tongue. Proverbs, a lot of the Proverbs deal with the tongue. Proverbs 18.7, A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. The first one is what? A bit of a horse. Now, you guys are horse people. Some of you, you guys are horse people. What does a bit do to a horse? It's like a bride. I mean, it guides them, okay? So like a big, huge animal, you can control that animal by the bit in their mouth, right? You can, you, and so what's he saying here about the tongue? Tongue is a small, when you think about the organs in your body, hands, arms, tongue is real small, right? But it can control the whole course of your, of your life, the tongue, the way that you can guide, guide a, a horse. Then he talks about a rudder on a ship. You know, think about a huge boat. Think about how big, how big is a rudder compared to the boat? It's pretty small. But that little rudder steers the entire boat, and he's saying the same thing about your tongue. Your tongue is real little, but it can steer your entire life. And then he talks about it being a spark of fire. It only takes a spark to get a fire going. Wow. Proverbs sixteen twenty seven. 
A worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. Anybody ever had venomous fire come out of their mouth and afterwards you're like, why in the world did I say that? And then verse 6 gives us a very unpleasant description of the tongue. What does he say? It is a fire. It sets the whole body on course. It is the fire of hell. He, he describes evil speech compared to the fires of hell. That's a strong word there. Can our speech really be hellish? What's hell? The, the, the thing that the image that Jesus uses, the word hell is the word Gehenna. I don't know if you guys know that word Gehenna, um, the Valley of Gehenna. Let me write it up here. Back in the days of Jerusalem, during Jesus' time and during James' time, um, south of Jerusalem, it was the garbage dump. And all the dead bodies and all the maggots and all the rubbish and all the trash from Jerusalem were piled out into Gehenna and they burned it on fire. And there was a perpetual smoke that came up from Gehenna so that when you look south of Jerusalem, you'd see the putrefied smoke coming up of all the burned trash. That was the word for hell. So that's the image that, that they saw the spiritual is, is that it's the place of never-ending fire and torment. And so James is being very strong here talking about, can, can our speech be compared to hell? And that's, a strong, that's about the strongest thing you can think about, our speech being compared to hell. Now let's talk about some specific ways we can keep our tongue in check. Let's first of all talk about lying. Proverbs 12, 19. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Ephesians 4, 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Okay, so lying is one way that we can control our tongue. Don't lie. What, what's another one? I think this one's really, really hard for people. Gossip. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. How easy is it to get into gossip and you don't even know it? Well, you know, we naturally want to know juicy stuff about people, don't we? So when somebody starts saying something about somebody else, our first reaction is like, no, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. What's our first reaction? I want to hear it. Keep telling me more. And oftentimes we disguise it as a prayer request. You know, we really should be praying for so-and-so. Because so-and-so is doing this. We really need to be praying. And what we're, what we're really saying is we have no intention of praying for them. That's just our spiritualized way of gossiping as Christians. We don't just outright gossip. We, we need to pray for that person. So how do you respond when a person starts gossiping? The Christian thing to do, and it's very hard, is to say, here's what I would say. If somebody comes to me with gossip, and a lot of times people, you know, church members come, and, they, and I, the first thing is I said, you know, number one, I don't want to hear any more of what you have to say. Um, this is gossip. And the other person's not here to defend themselves, so I'm not going to take part in it. Number two, have you gone to that person directly and confronted them about what, what you're telling me? Because if you haven't talked to them about it and you're talking to me about it, that's gossip. So I think you need to stop it when it happens, and you need to tell that person to go back to the person that they have an issue with. How often do we do that? Hardly at all. What do we like to do? We want to get the juice. And I'm not saying you can't come to me and talk to about another church member. As a pastor, sometimes I need to listen and there's issues with other church members and we need to talk that out. But often what I'll end up saying is we need to go back and directly talk to that, that person because sometimes we can get caught up in gossip and not even know that we're doing it. Another way that our tongue can be a fire is put-downs. 
Um, Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. You know, instead of putting people down all the time with your lips, with your mouth, are you building people up? I think it's easy to, to put people down. And I'm not saying like, you know, I remember those. I'm not talking about like real gross cut downs. I'm just saying sometimes we can just not be edifying in our speech. Another way that we can have a, a, a tongue on fire is arrogance. In the way we talk, Psalm 94.4, they pour out of their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. Now, it's interesting here because James says there's really a, it's difficult to tame the tongue. What does he say? We've been able to tame every known animal, most domesticated animals we've been able to tame, but what can we not tame? We can't tame the tongue because it's a restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. Psalm 140, verse 3, they make their tongue sharp as a serpent's, and under their lips is the venom of asps. It spreads like a cancer. And let me ask you, where does evil speech come from? Does it come from your mouth, or where does it come from first? It comes from your mind and your heart. It comes from inside. And that's what Jesus <laughs> says. In Matthew 15, 11, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And what Jesus is saying is out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, you know, as you think about this section in James, those are some pretty strong metaphors for the power of the tongue. You've heard the old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Can words hurt? I mean, look at, look at what he's talking about here. Hell, fire, evil, deadly poison. Do we really see the power of our words? And I would just encourage us to go back and, and, and ask the Holy Spirit to give us, can we control our, our speech the way that God would want us to do that? All right, let's keep moving through James chapter 4. Again, we can't look at everything. James 4, 4 through 12. He's going to address spiritual adultery. And what James is going to assume, he's going to assume the mantle of an Old Testament prophet. And he's going to start talking like an Old Testament prophet. It'll sound real Old Testament here. So let's, um, let's pick up chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He's made to dwell in us, but He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify you hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge he who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? You adulterous people. What does it mean by adulterous? What does it assume? Why, is he, why would he call them adulterous? Does he say anything here about having adultery or marriage relationships? Why does he call them adulterers? What's an adulterer? Someone who what? Okay, someone who betrays a spouse. Okay, so... If you are an adulterer, what have you done? You've betrayed, you've sinned, 
you've forsaken, you've uh, hurt who? A spouse. In the Bible, God is called our husband, and we are called what? The bride. So as the bride, what have we done to our husband? We've betrayed sin, forsaken, and hurt him. So James is talking here about spiritual adultery against God. As a matter of fact, there's a passage of Scripture in Isaiah, and it's not, I think it's on your sheet, Isaiah 54, 5-6. through six. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. So how have we committed spiritual adultery against God. What does he say there? How does it happen? Friendship with the, the world. Friendship with the world. Um, friendship is where we get our, our word um, Philadelphia. It's, it's a love affair. You have a love affair with the world. When, you th- when, we, when we talk about friendship in our culture today, we can kind of throw it around pretty loosely, right? Back in James's day, when they talked about friendship, it was a deep issue. When, they, when you were friends back in the biblical time, it meant that you shared everything. You shared life, you shared your meal, you shared everything physically, emotionally. You gave yourself to the other person in a deep bond of friendship. Now think about that imagery carried out to how we give ourselves to the world. So is friendship with the world just kind of casual, hey man, we in the world are buds? Or is it more, I'm giving myself totally enamoredly to the world in this deep, intimate bond. And what does Paul tell us in Romans 12? Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what's the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect Paul also tells us in Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on things that are above, not on the things of the earth. So, how does God feel or how does God act toward a person that's prideful? What does it say there in verse 4? God opposes. It's a strong word in the original language. It was used as a military term of a full army ready for battle. That's kind of scary, don't you think? God is dressed for battle and ready to go to war against you if you're prideful. That should scare you. But what does he do? He gives grace to what? The humble. Let's talk about pride for a moment. Psalm 10, 3-4. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. And all his thoughts are, there is no God. You know, over and over again, the Bible says God hates pride. Very few things does it say God hates in the Bible. It says he hates divorce. um, He hates unequal scales. There's a lot of things that God says he hates, but over and over again, he says he hates pride. And here it says he opposes the pride, the proudful, the prideful. 
So let me just give you a few reasons why pride is so detestable to God. Number one, it doesn't know its own need. If you're prideful, what are you walking in? I'm walking in self-sufficiency. I've got it all figured out. I can take care of myself. I don't even know I have a need because I'm all that. I don't even need God. Number two, it loves independence. It will not submit to anybody or even to God. And thirdly, it's blinded to its own sin. There's an arrogant defiance of any sin or need of forgiveness. My old pastor said, better to humble yourself before God now than to be humiliated by God later. <laughs> better, to be humble, better, better to humble yourself before God now than to be humiliated by God later. I thought that was a good saying. Humble yourself before the Lord. Because it says he gives grace to the humble. And then what he's going to do here is that um, in this real staccato, quick type of way, James is going to give ten commands. You don't necessarily need to know that they're in the aorist imperative. Basically, this, when something's in the aorist imperative, it's a command that's meant to be obeyed quickly. Okay, get to it. Move fast. You've got to get going on these. These are quick, urgent we need to get serious about these things. And he gives 10 of these quick commands for repentance. Okay, you are committing spiritual adultery. You're being prideful. You are not repenting. You need to quickly, with urgency, with passion, repent and get back into that intimacy with God. And so let's look at the first one. Submit to God. Verse 7, submit yourselves to God. It's the most important. That's why it's first. What does it mean to submit? It's a military term again. Submit means to line up and rank underneath. It means that the best way I can say it is there is a God and you're not Him. You are God, I am not. And I humbly bow myself under your authority because you have the right to be God, and I'm going to submit myself to your will. Whatever you say, whatever you command, I am at your disposal, God. I'm giving myself fully to your lordship. That's what it means to submit to God. What did Jesus say in Luke 9.23? He said that to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and daily follow me. So, submit to God. What's the second one he says there? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, this is a very important verse. What does it say? Does it say go on a witch hunt against the devil and go search him out? Do we have to go look for the devil? Or is he looking for us? Resist is the same Greek word that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 6 to talk about stand. Stand firm, resist. Resist the devil and what will he do? He'll flee from you. So how do you resist the devil? How do you, okay. How do you resist the devil? I think a lot of times people put God to the test by engaging in sinful behavior to a certain point and then hoping God will bail them out. You understand what I'm saying? If I can just go this far and expose myself to this much stuff, I know God won't tempt me beyond when I'm going to be tempted. And so they go ahead and put themselves in situations hoping God will bail them out. That's presumption. I think when it says resist the devil, I think what God means there is 
putting ourselves in positions to where we're surrounded by God's word, we're in prayer, we have a good accountability structure, and that when the devil does come to us, we, we aren't flirting with what he wants us to do, but we're, we're standing in the, in the strength of the Holy Spirit with the gospel, the, the full armor of God. Um, and things like that. And he will flee from us. That's a great promise. He'll flee from us. Now, I love the next one. What's the next one? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord said, Because this people draw near with me, near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. When it talks about drawing near to God, this is one of my favorite parts of James because here's what often happens. When you're sinning and you're in a period of disobedience or you're in a period of rebellion, what's the last thing you want to do? Talk to God. What do you want to do? You want to run from God. You want to act like he's not there. You want to kind of play hide and seek. You want to avoid God. You want to avoid church. That's the last thing you should do. What does it say here? Draw near to God and he will. Because what's our fear? Our fear is God doesn't want to talk to me right now because I'm so bad. And I know I'm sinning and I don't want to talk to God because he doesn't want to talk to me. And God is disappointed in me. And so I'm just going to keep my distance from God. And, and, and we play this game. And the more you keep your distance from God, the more you're, you're disbelieving who God is. Because God promises if you draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. What do you need the most when you're sinning? God. But we often think, God's not going to accept me. God's not going to love me. God's going to hate me. God's going to be disappointed in me. And yes, is there sin? Yes. Have we disappointed God? Yes. Can we confess our sins? Yes. But does God still love you? Yes. Draw near to Him, and He will draw near to you. What greater promise to have that God will draw near to you, that God will come to you. It's this whole idea of coming back to Him in repentance, coming back to Him in intimacy. What's the next one there? Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And this draws back to the Old Testament. The priest in the Old Testament had to um, cleanse their hands before they'd enter the temple and do the sacrifices. And so the hands here is really a symbol of our outward behavior, our outward behavior. So there's the inward um, repentance, right, where we confess and repent, and there's the inward heart change. But it also has to translate into what? Demonstrable outward repentance and so cleansing our hands is this whole idea that once we've had the once we've confessed our sins and 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 we've god's cleansed us it's got to translate into how we actually go about living outward our outward action um first john 1 9 if we confess our sins he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness i think we have to remember something here when it says cleanse your hands do we cleanse our hands or does God cleanse our hands? It's kind of like this imagery. When you clean your hand, when you cleanse your hands, what do you do? You put them under the water. What happens if you don't put them under the water? They don't get clean. Who's the water? God's the water, but you've got to put your hands under there, okay? So you're not, God's the one that cleanses you, but you've got to You've got to repent and you've got to confess and you've got to get yourself in a posture to, to, to have God do that. Purify your hearts is the next one. We also have to have that inward heart change as well. Um, then he says, be wretched. Be wretched. This means to be totally devastated and broken 
over our own personal sin, that we groan in distress almost to the point of physical or emotional exhaustion. Have you ever gotten to the point where you were physically exhausted because you needed Christ so deeply? That you were so broken over your sin? Remember the tax collector and the Pharisee? Pharisee standing there, Lord, he prayed to himself. Lord, look at all these things I've done. I've tithed and blah, 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 and you should love me because i got this great resume. What did the tax collector do? He stood off in the corner and beat his breast and said, Have mercy on me, a miserable sinner. That's what it means to mourn, to be wretched. I, I have nothing. And then I think mourn's the same thing. I mean, you remember the, the beatitude, don't you? Blessed are those who mourn. And we said basically mourning was this whole idea that you are so bothered by your sin that you cry out for mercy and you realize you're spiritually bankrupt and you, and you need Christ so desperately. Weep. Mourn, weep. Joel 2.12, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And then Paul tells us a different type of weeping. He says there's such a thing as earthly sorrow or godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. But then he also talks about laughter. Laughter and joy. Proverbs 10.32, Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. Um, and then finally, what's the last thing he says? Humble yourself. How did it start? Submit yourself to God. How does an end humble yourself? They're kind of like bookends that tie this whole thing together. Um, if you're an adulterous person, by having friendship with the world, ultimately it comes in repentance, brokenness, humility, weeping, mourning, coming under the authority of God, submitting ourselves to Him. And I love this passage in Isaiah 55, 6-7. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I love that. Don't you love that passage? Isn't that a great promise? Okay, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on his name. Forsake your way. Return to the Lord. And when you come back to the Lord, what are you going to find? This God who sits there and is like, I'm going to thump you. What does it say? This God's going to have compassion on you and he will what? abundantly pardon, graciously forgive, repent. Don't be scared of God. Don't run from God. Come back to God because when you come back to Him, it's like the prodigal son. When the prodigal son came running home, what did the dad do? The dad stood on the porch and said, you're not coming back here, son. Who do you think you are? Is that the way the story goes? No. The dad, which in the Jewish culture was unheard of for a Jewish father to run, he runs out there, embraces his son, kisses his son, comes back and throws a party for the son and says, our son was lost, but now he's found. Let's celebrate. That's the way God responds to us when we repent, when we come back to him. He, he showers us with compassion. He, he abundantly pardons. He, he, he comes to us and he draws near to us. Okay? All right. Let's go into chapter 5 in the short time we have left. And let's talk about prayer. Again, we can't do everything in James just because it's, it would take a long time. Let's look, at, let's look at the end here where James is going to focus on prayer. So James, 15, I mean James 5, 13 through 20. James 5, 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? 
Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Eliza was a man, Elijah, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Well, here's the first issue. It's the individual's prayer. What does he say? If any of you are suffering, let him pray. What does 1 Thessalonians tell us? 5, 16, and 18? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Pray without ceasing. Always be praying. If you're happy, pray. If you're sad, pray. If you need help, pray. The whole point is pray. Pray, pray, pray. As an individual, pray. Is there happiness in your life? Is there joy in your life? Then you need to solo. You're like, what in the world is solo? Does that word look familiar? P-S-A-L-L-O. Look at verse 15. If anyone's cheerful, let him sing praise. Sing praise there is where we get our word psalms. We are to psalm. We're to sing praise. Now, here's the historical tradition about James. This is what history tells us. His nickname was Camel Knees because he spent so much time on his knees in prayer. You ever seen a camel in the old, and like the way they bend down? James was called Camel Knees because he was a man. Let that be your, if you had a claim to fame or a nickname, that would be a nickname you'd want. Especially as the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, he was always on his, on his knees. Camels? Yeah, I'm sure he did have calluses on his knees. All right, in times of sickness, here's this issue here. If a person is sick, they have permission to call for the elders of the church. The elders pray over that person, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. There's a lot of confusion over this because of what you see on Christian television, okay, with crazy faith healers and things like that. I will first say that we as elders have gone to people's houses and we have anointed them with oil and prayed over them. We don't do it publicly in a worship service where people come up and I wear the, I wave my white coat and have people, you know, we did it in India too, didn't we, Dave, where we people would we'd anoint people with oil in India because they were sick. Um, so we have a biblical admonition here. Let's just talk about what it does not mean, okay? First of all, what does this verse not mean? This text does not give instructions on spiritual gifts or anything about the gifts of healing, okay? This this this. Other places talks about that, but right here it doesn't talk about the spiritual gift of healing. Number two, James is not talking about a healing service in the church. There's no instruction whatsoever to have a healing service. He doesn't say, get a big tent, advertise, get everybody in there, and we're going to have a huge healing service, and we're going to have cameras up above, so when the person falls down, we get a good angle. Even though how the faith leaders have the above camera that goes down on them, it's very interesting to me. Number three... It's not referring to a public healing session where everyone's invited. The, the text really here implies a private time of prayer at the bedside of a sick person by a specific group of men, elders. 
And let's just kind of talk a little bit about the Roman Catholic. This is not what the Roman Catholic tradition called extreme unction or last rites where the, where the priest comes and anoints a person that's near death and, and magically causes their sins to be forgiven. What does the text actually say? The sick person is to initiate the process of calling the elders. Okay? We as elders have never hunted a person down and said, we're coming over to your house to anoint you with oil, be ready at 5 o'clock. We've had people call the church and say, we're, I'm very sick or I'm homebound. Could the elders come over and pray for me? And I've called the elders and we've uh, got a little thing of anointing oil. Nothing magic, it's just olive oil. We'll go over to the bedside of the person. We will pray over them. I will anoint them with oil. And we, we help the person understand that there's nothing, number one, magical about the elders. There's nothing magical about the oil. And just because we pray for your healing doesn't mean that you're going to be healed. Okay. What it does mean is this. And I think um, John Piper's got a good quote. He says this. Whom does a sheep need when it's wounded or sick? A shepherd. So I think it's a situation where when you're a, a sick person or you're going through a time of, um, of trouble, you want the men in the church that are your shepherds to come and love on you during that period of time. And um, I don't think there's anything wrong with the elders going and anointing somebody with oil and praying over them. And this is what it says here. They are to pray over the sick person. What does the text say? The posture? Um, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Okay, this literally means to pray over, and it's in the aorist imperative which suggests urgency, as is the person is bedridden and they can't even get up. It's almost this whole idea that they can't physically get themselves up out of the bed to even come out. You come to their bedside and pray over them. Now, and that's not always the case. Some people, you know, I don't want to be so legalistic and say, we're only going to pray on people if they're bedridden. We, you know, if they're walking around the house in a wheelchair, we can't do it. I mean, it's, it's, it's so we're praying over them. And then what's the method? The method is that we are to anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And again, there's nothing magical about the oil. The oil in the Old Testament was a symbol of healing. It was also a symbol of setting a person apart. And so let me just tell you how we do it as elders when we've anointed somebody. We, we go to their house. We, we spend time talking with them. And, and we'll say something like, you know, we, we'd love to pray for you. And we just want to let you know that we're normal, fallible men but we love you and we're coming as the elders of the church because we love you and you are um, a dear person that needs help. We're going to anoint you with oil. This doesn't mean that God may heal you. God is sovereign and he may choose not to heal you, but I think it's appropriate for us to pray for healing. I don't think there's anything wrong for us to pray that God would do a miracle. So your faith is not in us. Your faith is not in anointing oil. Your faith is in God. And if God chooses to heal you, Praise the Lord. If he chooses not to, then we will accept what God in his sovereignty does. But we sure are praying for healing. And then what I'll do is I'll take my little vial of oil and I'll probably put it in the shape of a cross, you know, on their forehead. Just, I don't know why you do that. You just, you know, and then, then we pray over them. And each elder takes a turn and we pray. And um, that's what we do. Um, and so that's happened to us. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, um, as long as we explain the theology behind it. The thing that gets kind of interesting here is when people take it out of context and say, verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, the Lord will raise him up. There's this idea that, um, you know, the prayer of faith, what's the prayer of faith? You've got these faith healers on TV that will say, 
Now, the reason you didn't get healed is because you did not have enough faith. If you just had more faith or you just claimed it and claimed it or blabbed it or grabbed it, if you just used the power of your words, if you just had more of a anointing, if you just give more money to my ministry, whatever it is, it's your fault, basically is what they say, that you don't have enough faith, that it hasn't happened. I think that what he's talking about there is not necessarily the faith of the person. I think it's more the elders coming in in faith. Um, and I think what happens is, it, here's the issue, theologically and pastorally. If a person is not healed because they don't have enough faith, this leads to disastrous results. What's the first one? They're already sick anyway. And if they don't get better, it's just going to make them feel like there's something wrong with them spiritually. And you've just beaten them down worse. They're already sick and they don't get healed, and you're telling them that you didn't have enough faith, and it comes back on something wrong with them. Number two, if the person is not healed, they can blame it on the elders and saying, well, you guys just didn't have the mojo. <laughs> and I'm going to go to another church where they got the mojo. <laughs> okay. I remember when we were in India, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if you remember me saying that, Dave, I was kind of afraid. I was kind of afraid when, 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 when Wayne said, we're having this meeting, okay? And Dave and Jan are out there doing this story with the kids, and the kids are all singing. And, and I don't think you knew what was going on because you guys were doing the story. And Wayne, uh, the pastor, the, the Indian pastor, comes up and he's like, uh, we really need to go back and, and pray because um, there's going to be a demon-possessed woman that's coming tonight, and we'll probably have to do an exorcism. And Pastor Sean, I'd like for you to do that. I'm like, say what? And, so, and I was like really getting panicked. I'm thinking, okay, good, we're going to go back to Wayne's compound and we'll, we'll get the group together and we'll spend time in prayer and we'll really have, I'll have time to search the scriptures. And then like, Wayne's like, we can't wait. She's, she's here now. And so she came down and, you know, and, and I told Wayne, I said, Wayne, I hope you know and hope she knows that I'm, I'm not the white guy with the mojo. I mean, because I think sometimes they're looking for the white person to come in and bring something that... I'll, and I just said, what I can pray for her is I'll pray for healing I'll pray, and I'll pray the best I can. But, and I asked Wayne, I said, like, what happens? Do they usually, you know. So I prayed for her and nothing happened. And so afterwards I went to, to Wayne. I said, well, nothing happened. Does that mean she wasn't demon possessed? He goes, well, usually when someone's demon possessed, they start frothing at the mouth and, you know, and rocking back and forth and going into convulsions and yelling blasphemies. But she didn't do that. So the demon may be stronger tonight when she comes back. So let's be prepared. I'm like, oh, great. But um, I don't know if we ever saw any demonic manifestations while we were there. But sometimes when we were praying over people, you, you, I just wanted them to know that just because I'm praying for you is not an automatic guarantee that you're going to get healed. But I will pray for your healing. And I think that we just need to be real careful when we talk about this, this faith healing. I think really what the prayer of faith is this. It means that we recognize that God is absolutely sovereign and will accomplish His will. Will We can pray for healing and yet know that God could supersede our desires with His own purposes that might or might not include healing. Did God heal Paul of his infirmity in 2 Corinthians 12, 7-9? We don't have to ter- turn there, but what did, what did Paul say? I pleaded three times with God to remove the thorn in my flesh, and he did not. Did God heal Paul? No. If you go to 2 Timothy 4.20, Erastus remained in Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Paul left a guy who was ill back there. Didn't say anything in the text that Paul healed him. Does God heal automatically every time? We got a scripture here where Paul says, the guy was sick, we had to leave him there, we went on to the next town. We didn't bring in Benny Hinn, 
We just kept, kept him there. And then 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul says, don't drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. He tells Timothy, you know, use some Pepto-Bismol and some little rum and, you know, Coke or something. I don't know what he said. Just give some, get some whiskey down there to help your stomach. You didn't do a faith healing service with, with Timothy there. So God doesn't heal every time. He may. I think the other thing, though, that we see in this passage of Scripture is the corporate prayer. And this is something that we don't often do in church, and we should do. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. I think the second half we do, right? Therefore, pray for one another. We pray for one another. But what's the first one? What's the first part of that? Confess your sins to one another. We do a pretty good job of confessing our sins to God, but how often do we confess our sins to one another and pray for one another? And what's the promise there? You may be healed. Does that mean physical healing? Could. I think what it means in the context of church life is there's spiritual and emotional healing or relational healing. Relationships are healed. When, 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 when people are confessing their sins to one another, when they're being real with one another, when they're forgiving one another, when they're offending one another and going back and making it right, that brings relational healing. When you avoid it, when you don't talk about it, when you ignore it, when you brush it on the carpet, that doesn't bring healing. And notice what it says. It's, it's powerful. There's power in prayer. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. For the word working, we get our word energy. In a sense, prayer is the energy or fuel for healthy church and healthy relationships and then james gives us the example of elijah he basically said you know what and, and this always this always kind of bothered me you know, elijah was just a normal guy like you and he prayed well you go back and you read the old testament was elijah a normal guy like seven or eight miracles he did you know raise somebody from the dead so james you're kind of not playing fair there but i understand what he's saying elijah was a man just like us and he prayed and god did great things we pray fervently like elijah and then there's the parable of the widow, the persistent widow in Luke 18, 1 through 8. If you go back and read that, it was about the widow that just kept wanting justice from the judge and kept going back time and time and time and time again. And Jesus says, this is the way you ought to pray. Just keep going back time and time again. Basically busting down God's door with prayer, being fervent, being, um, being, being committed in prayer. But let's look, at, um, let's look at James's final command here, how he closes out his book. And then we'll leave room for some questions if you guys have them. Verse 19. My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. He's talking about a wandering sinner, this person who's wandered. The word wander there or the word bring back there really means to convert or turn around or to have a complete transformation where a person consciously forsakes his sin and turns to Jesus for salvation. Proverbs fourteen twelve, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And then Proverbs eleven thirty, we'll end with Proverbs because we said James is the closest to Proverbs of any of the New Testament books. Proverbs eleven thirty, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life and whoever captures souls is wise.